Morning, family. How are you? It's lovely to see all of you um, from here again. Uh, first time for me this year to be preaching to you. And um, I want to welcome a few people that I've seen here that it's very special to have you here with us. Um, Graham, where did you go? Graham, welcome back from the UK. Lovely to see you. I, um, there was such a wonderful surprise bumping into you in the, in the Life Cafe. And uh, I pray that the Lord would, uh, would bless you uh, as you're with us this morning. Um, and, and, and even speak into your heart. Um, and then, uh, Cynthia, where are you? Hello, Cynthia. It's so wonderful having you back. Oh, it's so good to have you. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to see everybody, I promise. I'm just picking out a few that I haven't seen for a while. Um, Victor, it's lovely to see you too. <clears throat> okay, so, uh, are you here with your wife today? Oh, she's, okay, okay, okay. All right, great. So, um, I'm going to preach now. And... Um, as you know, I've learned to preach in only 30 minutes. Um, today's a hot day, and I need to confess I'm going to preach for longer. So um, if at any stage you feel too hot or you need some water, uh, you're welcome to grab it. But uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I wrote this sermon four or five times, and I've cut it four or five times, and this is the best that I can do. So... Um, I do love you and I do honor you and your time, um, but I feel the Lord speaking something to us this morning and I'm just going to bring it. Is that okay? So um, Joey preached last week uh, on starting 2024 with faith. A great sermon and a great start to the year. And I want to pick up from there and preach on how we can apply our faith to our practical living for Jesus this year. The title of my preach today is Dying Happily to Live in 2024. I'll say it again. Dying Happily to Live in 2024. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Now that sounds like something that Mr. Topsy-Turvy would say. Has anyone seen the Mr. Men books? Anyone? Oh my. There's these little men and then there's Mr. Funny and Mr. Angry and Mr. Right? And there's Mr. Topsy-Turvy and he speaks all upside down. And, and, and here Jesus is speaking like Mr. Topsy-Turvy, right? He says, if you cling to your life, if you try to save it, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for me, if you lay it down for me, you'll find it. And there's, there's lots of Mr. Topsy-Turvy statements in the Bible by Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to be first, you must become last and be the servant of all. He says that in Mark chapter 9, verse 35. He says, God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. 
Jesus says, if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted in Matthew 23, verse 12. Jesus said, you receive by giving in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. He says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And in Matthew 21 verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he turned the tables overturned the tables of the money changers, and he overturned the seats of those who were selling doves. And, and Jesus is in the habit of turning over our tables and our seats. He's in the habit of bringing change to our priorities and our routines, kicking out our seats where we're comfortably seated from under us. Jesus calls us to a different initially less comfortable path in this life. Did you notice I said initially less comfortable? Because the path leads to glory and heaven and everlasting joy and pleasure. But initially, he calls us to something less comfortable. Matthew chapter 7 verse 14 Jesus said, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And that's why I want to declare, to preach, to teach and call you to come with me and die and live like Jesus us encourages us to. Why? Because it's hard at first and only few find it, the path that leads to life. Only if you find it. And it's hard. And that's why this morning I want to call you like the Josh Jen motto. Come, die, live. Come and die happily with me. Gavin, could you join me please? Guys, this is Gavin. You may not recognize him from just a few weeks ago. Months ago, Gavin has lost two-thirds of himself. I'm, I'm exaggerating. But it looks like it. Doesn't he look fantastic? And, 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 um, and I can tell you Chief is in the process of doing the same. I noticed he's lost a little bit of himself as well. It's a good thing to be healthy. But, but Gavin had a change in his life, didn't you, Gavin? He changed what he ate. And I noticed, and I tried to do it, and then I did it for a week, and then I stopped. <laughs> because it was hard. But he kept going. He persevered. And then after changing what he ate for about two or three months, he then started to exercise, and, and he changed the way that he lived. And was it easy, Gavin? Definitely not. It wasn't easy at all. But now we have Super Gavin. <laughs> he is fit and strong and healthy and light 
and run circles around me on the five-a-side football field. You can sit there, Kevin. It's hard at first. It required some narrowing of his diet and some changes, but it was well worth it in the end, wasn't it, Kevin? Yes, it was. And so this morning, I want to remind you, those of you who have heard it before, and, and, and tell you those who have never heard it before, and explain the principle of dying to live, and give you some very practical ways that we can all die to live. As James says, we want to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. And so you're going to hear a good word today. It's not because I'm preaching. It's because it's from the Lord. It's in the Bible. It's good. But I want to explain it in such a way as you understand it and you want it. And then you know how to practically apply it. Now, Jesus isn't the only one who says, come and, and die in order to live. The Apostle Paul, in in describing what happens when we become Christians, in Colossians 3, verse 3, he says, For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. So Jesus says you need to die, and the Apostle Paul says, When you became a Christian, you died. And, and baptism is a picture of that. You go under the water, which is to say you're dying, and then when you come back up, do you remember that, Leroy? Do you remember your baptism? I'll never forget that. You came up and a new man, a new life. But before the new, the old has to die. And the Apostle Paul um, um, speaks in Galatians as well, in, in chapter 2, verse 20, of himself personally. And he describes himself going through this process. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's the first place in today's preach when you're going to hear the word faith. Joey said we need to start off 2024 with faith. Okay? And so I'm going to talk about dying and faith and how the two work together, how they are necessary for each other. All right. So that's the introduction. We're going to see how dying and faith work together. But before we jump in, usually when we talk about dying, it's something scary or negative or to be run away from or, or shielded against, right? At the moment, I live in a security estate in Malkbosch, and I do that because... I don't want to die. Sorry? Thanks. Yeah. We, we put up alarm systems and burglar bars and because we want to keep safe. It's a natural human thing that we want to be safe. And so when we hear, come die, we think... Thanks. <laughs> I'm going to use the other buffet. Because we tend towards comfort and convenience and self-preservation. We don't tend towards the prospect of pain or, or sacrifice and certainly not death. 
So, why then does Jesus call us to die? Who must die? What must die? You, you know, we don't have the, you know, the altar at the back of the church around the corner where everyone goes and, you know, uses a knife. I mean, so it's not my body that needs to die. It's not. So what needs to die? Well, let's look at it. Galatians chapter 5 verse 24 gives us a clue. And it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. Now, crucifixion is a form of death, right? A form of killing somebody. And Galatians says that we've taken the passions and desires of our sinful nature. Another a translation reads... And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay? And so I want you to remember these two words. The sinful nature. Say sinful nature. And the flesh. It's the same thing. It's the same, different words for the same thing. Somewhere else, the Apostle Paul talks about the old man must die. Right? So the old man, the sinful nature, the flesh, that is what we are talking about that needs to die. The sinful nature, the flesh with its passions and desires. And, and what are the passions and desires of the sinful nature or of the flesh? Galatians chapter 5, the same place, just a bit earlier on, verse 19, tells us. Let's read it together. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. Things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. Okay. So, so the, the works or, the, or the, the, the outworking of the sinful nature or of the flesh are all those sinful attitudes and actions that I've described. And, and the risk with a verse like that, like that, is we read it and there's lots of words in there, but they don't mean much to us. And so what I thought is, I'm going to just take the first four of those words, the first four works of the sinful nature, which are obvious, and I'm going to just unpack them for you a little bit so that you see that actually they apply to us. The first word there is sexual immorality. Okay? In the Greek, that is the word pornia. And it means the thought life, the desire of the eyes, the heart, the imagination. A selling off or surrendering of sexual purity. It, it means sexual promiscuity of any and every kind. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 verse 27 describes 
sexual immorality. And it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so when the Bible describes that sexual immorality is one of the works of the sinful nature or the flesh, it means any thought of it. It doesn't mean you have to have gone and acted it out. Any thought or intent or second look or... Let's move on to impurity. Impurity is the second one. Romans chapter 1 uses that same word, impurity, in verse 24. And it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. And then he unpacks this impurity in verse 29 as the following. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, Insolent, sorry, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithful, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That is impurity. Are we together? The third one is sensuality. And I thought, no. This one won't apply to me. I was wrong. Sensuality basically means a lack of self-control. The behavior in view is often sexual, as here in Romans chapter um, 13, verse 13. But the more general idea is absence of restraint, unbridled lust, excess, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence. Another translation in, in 2 Peter verse two verse, uh, chapter 2 verse 7 describes sensuality as unrestrained behavior. It's basically doing whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, with or to whoever I want. It's the you can't tell me what to do mindset. It's a numbness of conscience always seeking pleasure in extremes. Not just in action, but in entertainment, or gaming, or watching, or clothes, or behavior, or speech, or attitude. That is sensuality. Hmm. And the last one? Uh, there's so many of them, I thought I'd just pick four. Idolatry. Now we sometimes laugh at the description of the of, of, of People in the Bible bowing down to or praying or making wooden or stone or gold images. And, and we think, sure, those people are, are foolish. And, and we distance ourselves from them or, or how we live. But modern sophisticated man still has his idols. They don't take the form of graven images, but they're made rather of inferior stuff nonetheless. There are still people who worship trees and rocks. They just don't bother to fashion them into anything. And we call them environmentalists. And they have elevated the earth to God's status. 
A few have even bought into Eastern religions, which literally revere the earth as a goddess. Our main concern isn't the earth or its climate, it's our relationship to God. Our foremost duty in life is to reverence and obey Him. And among all His creatures, our first concern must be for those made in His image, our fellow man. Jesus did not say the greatest commandment is to love your planet as yourself. Or love your pet as yourself. But to love your neighbor as yourself. Some idols are flesh and blood. The stars of music and movies and TV and sports have long been called idols. A description that is more truthful than we realize. These idols are valued because of what they provide, entertainment. And our worship of them is just a symptom of our overemphasis on entertainment. It's dangerous to idolize other people for any reason. The heathen world of Paul's day had spiraled into depravity because it worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Sometimes people worship idols of paper and plastic building their lives around the God of wealth. These gods are revered because they can get us more idols. Idols of wood and brick called houses. Idols of steel and fiberglass called cars and boats. Idols of fine fabric called clothes. Idols of wire and buttons called electronic gadgets. People use wealth as the sole measure of the quality of life. Sometimes we judge the success of our jobs or even our marriages by how much we have. Parents use material things as a substitute for parenting, and so children learn to value things more than people or God. Even some people who are children of God, exhibit a kind of respectable worldliness. They'll do anything for their Lord and their brothers, just so long as it doesn't cut into their enjoyment of material things. Do you know, worship isn't primarily singing songs. It is primarily lives lived on earth. And to know who or what we worship, we must ask who or what is central, prominent in our lives. Who or what do we devote ourselves to or make sacrifices for? Who or what are we living for? So that's idolatry. Was it okay to pause on those four? Do those four apply to us? These are attitudes and thoughts and actions that we had and thought and did. And notice I'm speaking in the past tense. When we followed the flesh or the sinful nature or the old me who was a rebel against God. But how many of you like me can relate that this may still be a present tense statement? 
that there might still be these attitudes and thoughts and actions that we still have despite claiming to be friends of God and followers of God now. Romans 8 verse 7 to 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In Galatians 5, he continues and he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. And so, the flesh or the sinful nature is the old me. The self-reliant me. The faithless me. The me that is opposed to God and can't please Him, and in fact doesn't care whether I please Him or not. And that is what needs to die. But the question is, how? How can we put the flesh or the sinful nature to death practically? And so now we're going to move from theory to practice. Is that okay? I've been going for 26 minutes so far. Are we hot? Are we coping? Okay. How do we fight and put to death the sinful nature and the flesh? And the answer is, we fight them by trusting Jesus. You're like, please don't stop there because... That's not helping me yet. We fight them by rejecting their lies. Lies like, you will be happier if you do this, or think this, or buy this, or hide that, or say that, or have that, or eat and drink that. We fight them by believing the counsel and promises of Jesus over their lives. We decide to die to the deceit of Satan and the flesh and their empty false promises. The way to put the flesh to death is by trusting in the path and the promises of Jesus that they are better than what Satan and the flesh promises you. This way of doing battle is called the fight of faith. And the victories of this fight are called the works of faith. This is not a game. It's not a war with rubber bullets. Eternity is at stake. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Can I pause there? I've been going quite fast. I just want to slow down. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Does that mean 
you will uh, die when you're old and be buried. No, everyone dies like that. But if we live according to the flesh, and we've described the flesh, we will die eternally. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that's why I'm shouting this morning, come and die to the flesh. Come and die to the sinful nature. Because then only you will live. It's conditional. This Romans chapter 8 was written by Paul to professing Christians. Our eternal life hangs on the choice that we make either way. We will either live to Christ and die to the flesh, or we will live to the flesh and die to Christ. Now, it's not referring to perfection, okay? It's not saying you must be perfect. Even the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So it's the the goal, the direction of travel, the, the trajectory, the daily fight that matters. The demand in Romans chapter 8 verse 13 is not sinlessness, but mortal combat with sin, the flesh, the sinful nature, and their passions and desires, which war against our soul. Are you with me? If the flesh has not been crucified, we do not belong to Christ. Wow, that's a heavy statement. Are you sure? Galatians chapter 5 verse 24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so the question is now, how? How do we put the sinful deeds of the flesh to death by faith? And, and so I'm going to give you an example, seeing as the first uh, word that we picked out of The list of um, fleshly thoughts or acts is sexual immorality. I'm going to use that as an example. So suppose I'm tempted to lust. Some sexual image pops into my brain and, and says, come and pursue me. The way this temptation gets its power is by persuading me to believe that I will be happier if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make us happier. So what should I do? Some people will say, well, remember God's command to be holy. 1 Peter, God says, be holy because I am holy. And exercise your will to obey because he is God. But something crucial is missing from that advice. And the thing that's missing is faith. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the fight 
in this case, against lust, but it could be against greed or um, uh, any other sin, is a fight of faith. Otherwise, the result is just legalism. Who's got the strongest will? Who can try to make themselves obey out of duty the best? And so when the temptation to lust comes, Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so it says that we need to put to death the sinful nature and its deeds and passions by faith and by the Spirit. So what does it mean to, to do it by faith and by the Spirit. Out of all of the armor that um, God gives us to fight Satan, only one piece is used for killing. Anyone know what it is? The sword. It's, it's called the sword of the Spirit. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so when Paul says, kill sin by the Spirit, I take it to mean, depend on the Spirit, especially His sword. And what is that sword? It's the Word of God. And here is where faith comes in. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And so what happens is, as I read the word of God, it cuts through the fog of Satan's lies. And it shows me where true and lasting happiness is to be found. And so the word helps me to stop trusting in the potential of sin to make me happy. And instead, it pulls me to trust in God's promise of joy. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I wonder how many of us today realize that faith is not merely believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins on a cross 2,000 years ago, but faith is also being confident that His way is better than sin. That His will is wiser than mine. That His help is more sure than my comfort. That His promises are more precious than pleasure now. That His reward is more satisfying than any sin. Faith begins with a backward look at the cross, but it lives with a forward look at God's promises. Abraham was mentioned this morning. And the Bible says in Romans 4 verse 20, Abraham grew strong in his faith, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 Maybe you've never understood it before. Listen to what it says in the context of what I've just said. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That means faith takes the promises of God and hopes for them, 
and attaches itself to God and to the promises in such a way as sin and the sinful nature is no longer what we want. When faith has the upper hand in my heart, I am satisfied with Christ and his promises. This is what Jesus meant when he said, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If my, joy, my thirst for joy and meaning and passion are satisfied by the presence and promises of Christ, then the power of sin is broken. We do not yield to the offer of cornflakes for lunch when we can see the steak sizzling on the grill. C.S. Lewis, the man who wrote the books of, of Narnia, amongst other things, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Satisfaction in God and his promises is the power that slays sin. The fight of faith is the fight to stay satisfied with God. Moses is another example. In Hebrews 11 verse 24 it says, By faith Moses left the palace and the pleasures of being a prince of Egypt. The fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? Because he was looking to his reward. Jesus did the same, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Faith is not content with fleeting pleasures. It is ravenous for real joy. And so, I'm going to take that example of, of a lustful thought, a temptation to think something lustful. And I'm going to show you how to pick up the sword of the Spirit and fight it and put it to death. Can I show you? Here we go. So at first, lust begins to trick me into feeling that I would really miss out on some great satisfaction if I follow the path of purity. But then I take up the sword of the Spirit and I begin to fight. And I read that it is better to gouge out my eye than to lust. Matthew 5.29 I read that it is God's will that I abstain from sexual immorality and that I learn to control my body in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 to 5 I read that my body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit who is living within me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 I mean, if you wouldn't look at something like that, if your friend was with you, or if your husband or wife was with you, 
How would you look at it when the Holy Spirit is with you? I read that he who commits adultery lacks sense, and he who does destroys himself. Proverbs 6, verse 32. I read that just a look or desire is like carrying fire next to my chest or walking on hot coals, and that I will be burnt by it. Proverbs 6, verse 24. I read that sexual immorality is actually sinning against my own body. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. And that I should flee from it. I read that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, verse 25. And I think, hold on, I don't like death. I read that God will judge all those who indulge in sexual immorality. As an example, he killed 23,000 people in one day. And I read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. I read that now is the time to stop, to repent, to change, and not to delay. Because Revelation 2 verse 9 says that otherwise God will judge me, either by sickness or tribulation or even worse, by handing me over to more and more of whatever I want to do in Romans chapter 1. I read that the mouth of a forbidden woman is a deep pit. He whom the Lord is angry with will fall into it. Proverbs 22 Verse 14, I read that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. I read in James 4, 4 that friendship with the world is enmity with God and that anyone who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I read that this is something that I can overcome, that no temptation I face is is except that is common to man, and that God will not let me be tempted beyond what I can bear, but will provide a way of escape so that I'm able to endure it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I read that I cannot cohabit with sexual sin in Colossians 3, verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. I read that none of us are immune like King David in 2, uh, 2 Samuel 11, verse 2 to 5. And so I watch and pray. I read that if I think about things that are pure and lovely and excellent, the peace of God will be with me, Philippians 4, verse 7 to 8. I read that setting the mind on the flesh brings death, but setting the mind on the spirit brings life and peace, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. And as I read, and as I pray through these scriptures to be satisfied with God's life and peace, the sword of God's Spirit carves the sugar coating off the poison of the lustful thought. And I see it for what it is. And by the grace of God, its alluring power is broken. That wasn't too bad, eh? 44 minutes. So in summary, landing. This is the way dead people do battle with sin.
This is what it means to be a Christian. We are dead in the sense that the old unbelieving self, the flesh, has died. And in its place is a new creation. And what makes it new is faith. Not just a backward-looking belief in the death of Jesus, but a forward-looking belief in the promises of Jesus. Not just being sure of what he did do, but also being satisfied with all that he will do for us as we obey him. With all eternity hanging in the balance, we fight the fight of faith. Our chief enemy is the lie that says sin will make our future happier. Our chief weapon is the truth that God will make our future happier. And faith is the victory that overcomes the lie because faith is satisfied with God. The challenge before us then is not merely to do what God says because he's God, but to desire what God says because he is good. The challenge is not merely to pursue righteousness, but to prefer righteousness. The challenge is to get up in the morning and prayerfully meditate on the scriptures until we experience joy and peace in believing the precious and very great promises of God. And with this joy set before us, the commandments of God will not be burdensome. And the compensation or the reward of sin will appear too brief and too shallow to lure us in. My last line that I wrote. Eat the good stuff and you won't any longer crave the bad stuff. Because you will be full and satisfied. Do you remember Zach's picture? The banquet. We need to eat what a good chef has made us. Which is healthy for us. And tasty. And will take us for eternity into indescribable pleasure and glory. And then we won't want the sugar-coated poison that will leave us in hell forever. Amen?